This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. back to the Extra Awesome series here on Sorta Awesome. I'm your host, Meg Teets, and in the Extra Awesome series, we take a little time to talk to awesome people who are doing amazing things in the world. You guys, I am so stoked about today's conversation. I know that it's really going to hit home and really be so helpful for so many of us. I am joined today by Dr. Marissa G. Franco. Dr. Franco is a psychologist who specializes in the realm of friendships, and she's the author of the brand new book. It comes out today, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Dr. Franco, welcome to Sorta Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I was telling you before we started recording that I pre-ordered the book. As soon as I started hearing the buzz about Platonic on social media, I absolutely knew this is a book I have got to read. We've been making Sort of Awesome for seven years. So seven years of, of talking with women and building community with women. You can imagine that friendship is a topic that comes up over and over again. And sometimes it's celebrating friendships. We try to celebrate friendship as much as we can here, but sometimes friendship can be a pain point for a lot of us. So I'm super curious. You're a psychologist. How did you find yourself kind of specializing into this corner of psychology, helping people in this realm with friendships? So that's a great question. I would say in my young 20s, I did not focus on friendship. I focused on romantic love. Mm -hmm. And I was going through all these breakups and they're making me feel really lousy. So I started this wellness group with my friends where we met up, we cooked, we did yoga together. We meditated every week. And I realized that I was feeling so bad about these romantic relationships because I thought this is the only love that matters. Mm. I'm only lovable if I have this right. form of love. And I looked around me and I was like, there's always been so much love around me. Why hasn't that ever mattered? Oh, and wow. Yeah. I just really started to question this hierarchy that we place on love and why, you know, there's like gold under our feet with our friends, but we oh, don't even see it. We just see yes. it as concrete. Mm. Um, so yeah. So after that, I was sort of uh, getting my PhD in psychology, trying to read all the books on friendships that were there and realized 
I want to read something that is like research backed, mm-hmm. evidence based, and also holds friendship in like such high sacred regard that questions the very banal, limited scripts that we have about friendship. Yeah. And yeah, I figured, I guess it'll be me to write it. Wow. I love that. I love the idea of incorporating scientific, evidence-based research into our conversations about friendship. Most of us, when it comes to friendship, of course, most of us are kind of just muddling through, right? We're just kind of doing the best we can with our life experiences. Maybe what we've learned from our families of origin or community spaces we've grown up in, either religious or education, those types of things. But when it comes to like, actually, how do these dynamics work and how can we apply that understanding of how they work to, you know, like the sort of nuts and bolts of friendship, like the daily work of it, the the texting, the meeting up for coffee, just the, the actual like nitty gritty. I love this idea of weaving those things together. And I cannot wait to talk about more of that with you, especially that you cover in your book in just a few minutes. But first, I just have a question that I'm just super curious about, just on a personal level. And it's something that I have really thought about a lot in the past few years, especially as we've created Sort of Awesome and had so many conversations around friendship. I wonder if in this like sort of modern era, here we are in 2022, so much of our lives are so digital, are so lived online, and also there are so many conversations around how hard it is to make friends as adults. I'm curious if, do we have it harder than like our parents or grandparents' generations when it comes to friendship? I think about my mom and her friendships as an adult woman. They were very local, of course. There was no internet. Like you were friends with who, you know, proximity-based, right? Like who was in your community, who was in your your spaces that you were in often. Do you think that we have it harder or is it just a different kind of hard when it comes to friendship in this modern era? Meg, I would say this is the hardest time to make friends in human history. Wow. Yeah. And and here's here's what, what supports that. So Robert Putnam, he's he has this great book called Bowling Alone about like why were people used to be so why do people used to be so involved in civic life and now mm-hmm. they're not, right? Yeah. Like less people are going to bowling leagues, places of worship around the nineteen fifties. Things really started to go down. And what he found was the biggest culprit is really the creation of the television because <gasps> Yeah. Before then, leisure was done in community. It was a public affair. It was, we have free time, let's hang out. But now we have free time. We have something else to do that gives us a tiny, you know, a sort of snack of connection in Mm -hmm. some ways. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to seek out each other in the same way. And you can imagine how that's only gotten amplified with having these phones and having pseudo connection that we get through social media. We all have something else to do that doesn't force us to try to connect with each other. And, you know, there's research that around 2012, loneliness started to really spike specifically amongst younger generations. What happened in 2012? Rise of the smartphone. Mm. And so loneliness has just been increasing steadily for decades And the issue with that is when you look into the science of loneliness, it's not just a feeling being lonely. Loneliness fundamentally alters how you perceive everything around you. Loneliness is a stress state wherein, if you think about it historically, if you were lonely, you were separated from your tribe and potentially in danger. That still happens when we're lonely. We are basically looking out for threats. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Only people, according to the research, are more likely to see other people as rejecting them, even when they're not. They report liking other people less, having less compassion for people, liking their roommates less. When they interact, they tend to talk a lot more about themselves, reference other people less, be cynical, less trusting of other people, right? It's the self-protective state that makes it really hard to get out of loneliness. Like for me, I, I knowing this research, there's moments when I'm lonely, I'm thinking about texting someone and I'm like, they're not going to want to hear from me. They probably mm. have all these other things going on. And now I know, oh, that's loneliness. Like that's how your, your lonely brain is very cynical and thinks everyone oh. is going to reject you. So wow. the more – yeah, so the more lonely we are getting, not only is it the hard, harder for us to reach out to other people, but it's harder to connect with a lonely person because they perceive you through such a cynical lens. And even if you may be trying to be loving and open towards them, they're thinking – oh, you're just doing this because you don't have anyone else to hang out with. Or this is kind of annoying. I have other things, right? Like we just tend to be so much more negative about connection, ironically. Yes. And you know what's so interesting as you're saying this, I'm thinking specifically of one of my children who's high school age, who this is a big struggle for her. And the things that you're saying, like, this is what your lonely brain tells you. These are the things I've heard her say, you know, it's hard to make friends. And yet I, you know, I kind of ask her some questions like, well, you know, have you ever tried to just like say hi or, you know, and then a lot of times the response is, well, I don't know why they would be talking to me anyway, or Mm -hmm. they probably would rather be with their other friends. And I never made that connection that once we get into that mindset of being lonely, that that's like the filter that we we see all of our our connections through. That is fascinating to me. Yeah, it's really sad. It is. It is. Well, one area that you have really seen these connections start to happen in what you're seeing in research and in, and in what the the data says, I guess you could say, as a as it applies to our actual human relationships, has to do with attachment theory, which I'm just going to be super honest with you. Everything that I know about attachment theory, I learned on TikTok, (laughs) which means it's probably not a really good understanding of what attachment theory is, Mm -hmm. first of all, although it is something that, you know, there definitely are these like psychology and therapy corners of TikTok where these conversations are having. But like you said, it's like a little snack size bite (laughs) of what's actually going on. So because a lot of your book, Platonic, is built on attachment theory and how it applies to friendship, can you kind of give us like a primer on like truly from a psychologist, what is attachment theory to begin with? Yeah, great question. So attachment theory is just basically the idea that all of us have these templates for how people are responding to us that affect how we then behave. Mm. 
Okay. And because social interaction is so much defined by ambiguity, the templates that we have in our head tend to be the greater truth than what's actually happening in reality because we don't know what the reality is, right? When someone doesn't text us back or, you mm-hmm. know, someone gets quiet, oh, maybe they're tired, maybe they hate us, who knows? Um, yeah. That's where our attachment comes into play. And we, we develop this template early on with our parents, right? If our parents are responsive, loving, kind, warm, we become securely attached, securely attached people, comfortable being intimate, building relationships with other people, getting close to people, tend to initiate more friendships, have more enduring friendships. Um, I call them the super friends. They, they have conflict really well. And then you have insecurely attached people. There's two major forms of insecure attachment. One is anxiously attached. These people tend to assume people will reject and abandon them. Mm. They tend to misfire and assume they're being rejected even when they're not. And because of that, they actually come off as rejecting to other people. That's one of the findings in my book is basically who's most likely to reject you. Often it's people that think they're being rejected. Um, okay. And so are they maybe like as a defense mechanism? They... Exactly. Defense mechanism. Yeah. Coldness, withdrawn, right? You didn't respond to my text. Now I don't want to hang out with you. Oh, I'm going to reject okay. you. Yes. Even though you are just, you know, busy doing some other thing, right? And so they they just have the, they tend to make a lot of demands on other people. Basically, if you're anxiously attached, it's like your sense of self is very much nested in the validation you get from others. So it's hard for you to feel good or calm or stable without getting affirmation from and validation from other people. Okay. Yes. Um, and then you have avoidantly attached people. They have grown up in environments where they're was food maybe and shelter, but there wasn't any emotional warmth and closeness. So they've learned if I need anything, if I ask for anything, if I'm emotional, people are going to shut me down. Mm. And so they are shut down emotionally. They're very out of touch with their emotions. They're suppressing their feelings. They tend to come off as like kind of closed off to other people. Their friendship networks, they don't they don't introduce friends to each other. They tend to be very uncomfortable with intimacy, very uncomfortable with vulnerability. When people do nice things for them, they assume they're trying to get something out of them. They just have this, this huge distrust of other people mm-hmm. that makes them very self-sufficient and alone. And you'll hear them say things like, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or, you know, valorize the sense of independent. I'm so independent. I don't actually need anyone. Like that's the way to be. Ah. Don't let them see you straw. You have to be strong all the time, right? Those are very avoidantly attached Um, ways of interacting. And, you know, fundamentally, I think attachment theory shows us is that this hyper independence is a lie because the secure people who are doing their best, not only in the relationships, but their mental health is the best. Their physical health is the best. Like these insecure attachments, they're more likely to experience inflammation, like ulcers, chronic headaches, right? Wow. Yeah. And so secure people And how do they become that way? Like the way that we really become resilient isn't through handling things on our own. It's it's people love them so well and they internalize that into their own sense of self. And then they are able to go out into the world with this higher level of of resilience and higher capacity for intimacy and love. That is so fascinating. On the one hand, it can feel a little discouraging because it's like, oh man, you know, because of my family of origin and just by the chance I was born into this style of parenting, 
whatever the spectrum may be, it may feel like, well, now what am I supposed to do? Um, especially as an adult and you're, you've developed all of these coping mechanisms through the years based on the, your original source of attachment. Um, I guess I'm curious, what, how does this then apply to friendship? Do you think it's important as people are maybe like some of what you're saying is like pinging with people and they're like, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I'm the eldest daughter. I'm always super independent. I do not want to have to rely on anyone and there maybe we're we're listening or thinking okay i can see how that shows up in friendship like what what do we do with that information yeah. dr franco <laughs> this is a great question right and and I, I understand how this can be discouraging and as someone who was anxiously attached and i would say now pretty secure i will say i find it very empowering because when i was more anxious i just thought the world was mean to me and there was nothing i could do and now right. that i realized how am I contributing to some of these problems? I can change, I can change things. So, awesome. so that's, yeah, that's really the message that I hope to convey. Like if you're insecurely attached, knowledge helps you get the relationships that you really want and find the love that you really want rather than a way to, to be hard on yourself or be mean to yourself. Cause that doesn't work when we're trying to change. <laughs> <laughs> Side note. Anyway. Um, so what would I suggest to people that are insecurely attached? So when you're insecurely attached, you're guilty of a confirmation bias. You only see things that match your perception of the world okay. and you ignore all the information that's counter to that, right? Mm -hmm. So literally the research says with avoidant, when you make someone prime them for avoidance by asking them to think about someone who didn't show up for them, and then you say something nice to them, they're thinking that you're just doing that out of because you want something from them rather than you're doing right. it from a loving way. And so it's like you can even get these signs that people love and value them and you're discounting them, right? Yes. And then and, and, and there's no way to penetrate, right? There's no way to penetrate your perception of the world if you ignore all the counter information and only take in the information that matches. Right. So let's begin to disrupt this process. Rick Hansen, he's a psychologist and he has this awesome model. And what he basically argues is that our brain has this negativity bias where we focus on what's negative. Instead, let us savor what's positive. Like literally make it a practice of when someone smiles at me, I'm pausing to take that in and focusing on it and extending it its impact on my body, waiting for that to stir something in me, for me to feel an emotion on behalf of that, because that makes your brain release dopamine and norepinephrine, which which causes your basically your brain to change, your your neural pathways to change, right? Yeah. And and so continue to be intentional about taking in moments of safety and moments of acceptance. They don't have to be huge. Someone responded to my text. Someone held the door for me. Someone told me happy birthday, right? You know, like someone smiled at me. Like any of these things are moments of safety to savor, to alter your attachment style. And that's why one of the biggest tips that I take, and I think this is, Rick Hansen has a great way for us to get there, is that what secure people do that makes them so secure is they assume that people like them. Mm. That is their default assumption unless there's evidence to the contrary, Right. And what this does is, according to research on the acceptance prophecy, when researchers told people, hey, you're going to go into a group and they're going to like you based on your personality profile, they became open, friendlier, warmer. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, I absolutely. I'm imagining scenarios where I could see this being true. It is all about, it's like it gives you this, it unlocks the energy that you need, exactly. right? From within to be like, I'm going into a place where everyone likes me. Why would I, why would I be nervous or why would I feel shy or anything like that? 
But yeah, so then I'll say like, once you assume people like you, it gets a lot easier to take initiative in friendship because the fear of rejection, it's really one of the biggest barriers to friendship. And so, well, you know, you can just, you know, say to someone that you like and even wanted to connect to, like, it's been so great to talk to you. I was wondering if you'd be open to connecting further. Like, could we exchange contact information and follow up? And and that's how easy it is, Meg. I mean, it, it sounds so scary. And because we just assume that, hey, if I go out and do this, people are going to reject me. We never actually test that assumption. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I went on a solo trip to Mexico. I made like four different friends in those 10 days using platonic stuff I've learned while writing platonic. Yeah. Like someone at a coffee shop speaking American English. Oh, hey, you know, like what part of the U.S. are you from? Invited him to a language event later on in that day. Met people at a language event. Oh, I want to go to this wrestling match on Wednesday, Lucha Libre. Like, would you be open to coming with me? And and they all joined me. And, and that is the world. People are actually way less likely to reject you than you think they are. And there's even science on this. There's um, a study on a phenomenon called the liking gap. A study on a phenomenon called the liking gap, where when researchers paired strangers and asked them afterward, how much do you like each other? Um, people tended to underestimate how liked they were. Oh, wow. And yeah. And when they were more self-critical, this underestimation was even more pronounced. Okay. So we think our critical thoughts, I'm weird, I'm awkward, no one likes me. We think they're the truth, but actually from the research, they're like really obscuring and distorting the truth. Yes. Okay. Again, I can just, I can think of so many examples. I'm sure everybody who is listening can see this in their lives, maybe in the lives of their, their partners, their parents, their children, their friends, where we tell ourselves these stories about ourselves, right? And then that so fundamentally shapes all of these interactions that maybe what I'm hearing you say is that in understanding how attachment works in friendship, we can start with just changing those stories that we tell ourselves and that that can be one of the like sort of baby steps into unlocking being able to find friends. And then also, I'm I'm kind of curious if you have time to tell us a little bit, how does this work in established friendships? Because I know that's not, not only do we talk a lot about like, I don't even know where to go to make friends, but especially since the pandemic started, there has been such a strain on, you know, well-established long-term friendships, people feeling disconnected for various reasons because of, you know, everything that shifted in 2020. I'm curious how attachment plays out in your long-time or more established friendships too. Yeah. Yeah. So for securely attached people, their friendships just tend to be more enduring. Avoidantly attached people, they just tend to form less intimate relationships. Shallow friendships, they move, all their friendships are over. They just don't have as as many friends. Anxiously attached people, because they fear abandonment, that can also be a driver for them to build these really intimate relationships where they're like, oh, I have proof you won't abandon me because we're so close. Yeah. Uh Yeah. But the thing is, they just tend to be more volatile over time because, you know, anxiously attached people taking things very personally, right? Right. If there's problems, they can't talk them out because they're like, this person's going to abandon me if I bring up this conflict Uh, or this issue. So I think the, the idea of like assuming people like you and taking in the good it's it's something that we should continue as our friendships continue, right? Because, yes. for example, like I remember talking to a journalist who was like, I applied this tip because when I was at an event, a friend didn't sit next to me. And I was like, why didn't you sit next to me? But then I was like, let me assume that they like me and, yes. and um, this is just an accident. Or I haven't heard back from a friend in like a day, right? Like 
okay, it's hard. I don't know. I wish they would have responded to my text message, but let me just assume they're busy rather than it's because they they hate me and fundamentally want to end the friend, right? There's just, I think all of these like tiny moments in friendship where we can, um, we can turn away or we can give grace. And even when it comes to like reconnecting with people, like one of our biggest barriers is we think they don't want to hear from us. But actually they, there was recently a study that came out that found that people actually appreciate that reconnection text or contact more than we think they do. And the more surprising it is, because the more they haven't heard from us, they appreciate it even more. And so using that as a tool to reconnect with someone that you haven't heard in a while, I think, are all really great, really, really great ways to continue to keep your friendships alive and maintain them. That is that is so true. One of the longstanding sort of mantras or phrases that I use in my personal life and that I've really tried to um, incorporate into our sort of awesome community is just the simple phrase of assign positive intent. Exactly. And certainly, certainly we can't do that carte blanche. There are relationships where the dynamic is maybe a little too toxic for that. But for the most part, when it comes to our interactions, I feel like if we can assign positive intent, like you gave the example of why didn't the person sit next to me at this thing, to assign positive intent. Maybe they had somebody that they were really needing to talk to or reconnect with, or maybe just like they didn't see that I was sitting here. You know, just kind of, again, going back to re- framing and retelling ourselves stories about like what's going on here, kind of checking ourselves and and looking for places and ways that we can assign positive intent, it sounds like is a good way to kind of um, continue to develop our friendship dynamics in a way that reflects healthy attachment is kind of what I hear you saying. Absolutely. And I think some people might hear this and they might be like, I'm going to get exploited, right? And okay. people are going to take advantage of me. But but here's what I want to share. There's this model called risk regulation theory. And what it argues is that basically we can either be in self-protection mode or pro-relationship mode. And okay. the two wow. are sort of opposite to each other. Because what we do to self-protect, we withdraw, we shut down, we're not vulnerable, we don't affirm other people, you know, instead we stay in this place of jealousy. All of that protects us, right? If someone wants to exploit me, they're not going to be able to do that as much if they don't know any information about me, if I'm completely closed off and withdrawn, right? Yes. But we don't often realize the costs of self-protection are very steep Mm. because we lose everything that we need to do to enhance our relationships requires taking risks and being exposed. You know, me affirming you, me showing you that I like you, that I value you, me being vulnerable, right? Um, Me going out of my way to reach out to you, like all of those things that are pro-relationship require us to give up a little bit of self-protection. And ultimately, that is the most self-protective thing that we can do because we know as human beings, the most healing thing that we have is our social connections. Like throughout life, the thing that heals us the most, like loneliness is akin to smoking 15 cigarettes a day and its impact on our bodies. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So if we're stuck in self-protection, ultimately in the short run, it may feel like it's self-protection, but in the long run, it is, it is a sort of very compelling self-harm actually, if you can't get yourself into pro-relationship mode. Wow. Wow. That is absolutely mind boggling. I think that, you know, first of all, the thing about loneliness is it is very isolating. It's a very isolating cycle. And so many of us think that we're the only ones that are dealing with loneliness. But to know that there is so much research out there about it, that there is so much research and that that you have a lot of wisdom to share with what you have found and you have put into your book, 
is very helpful and very encouraging. And I think the fact that you have been able to really specialize in this and really become a leading voice in this part of, you know, understanding human relationships in this time speaks to the fact that no, like no matter how much you think you are the only person struggling with loneliness or not being able to make friends, no, you are not. There are so many of us who find ourselves in this struggle. So I know that there is so much more that you have discovered and how you've applied it in friendship scenarios in your book, Platonic. Tell us, and again, it comes out today, you guys. I had pre-ordered. I've got my Kindle copy, but Dr. Franco, tell us, um, first of all, where can we find the book? Where would you send us to find the book? Pretty much anywhere books are sold, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, local bookstore, and the full title is Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Awesome. Awesome. And if we want to connect with you just on social media to hear more of your insights and what you are sharing there, where is the best place that we can find you on social media? Absolutely. So um, I do speaking engagements on science of connection and belonging, and you can contact me for that on my website, www.drmarissagfranco.com. That's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. And on my website, you can also take a quiz that assesses your strengths and weaknesses when it comes to friends and gives you some advice. And then if you want tips outside of, in addition to, to the book on the science of connection, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. Perfect. Well, you guys, we will have links in the show notes for this episode so that you can go buy the book and go follow Dr. Franco and take that quiz, which now I'm going to have to go do that because I love a quiz. (laughs) (laughs) So um, if you're looking for me on social media, you can find me at Sorta Awesome Meg. You can find Sorta Awesome by searching Sorta Awesome no matter what platform you're on. Dr. Franco, thank you so much. I know you're so busy in the midst of all of your book launch and publicity for the book and all of that. Thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us today. I really appreciate it. So, so happy to, Meg. All right. Thanks, Austin's, for listening. We'll see y'all next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.